0: Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Networks podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy in the state of Alabama. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for the citizens of Alabama. This podcast was brought to you by Bright Spot Ed, LLC, an educational consulting company based in Alabama, providing consulting, professional learning, evaluation services, and resources. Our goal is to highlight the good and replicate it across education. Check us out at brightspoted.com. I'm your host, Shelley Bell Smith. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Mary Dahlgren. Dr. Dahlgren is a national literacy consultant and child advocate from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Dr. Dahlgren's long-standing interest in early childhood and elementary education has compelled her to spend much of her career working directly with classroom teachers to embrace the science behind reading. She provides training on how to provide the best first instruction, along with implementation of effective interventions for struggling readers. She is also the president and founder of Tools for Reading and recently developed a phonological awareness and articulation program called KidLips. In addition to KidLips, she also designed and authored Tools for Reading phoneme grapheme cards, a quick reference to common phonics patterns in the English language. Dr. Dahlgren is a national letters training and the author of Fundamentals of Literacy Instruction, published by Voyager Sopras Learning in 2016. Welcome, Mary. Thank you for being here today. Hi, Shelley. Thank you for having me today. I'm so excited. I, of course, I'm a big fan of yours. And uh, many of us in this circle in Alabama are big fans of yours. And so we've got a lot of people that were able to hear you speak at MEGA this summer. So I'm just so excited to share you with some more people. Can you start by telling us how you became involved with literacy?
1: Yeah, well, I started my career I, going through education as a elementary ed major at Oklahoma State University. And I will tell you, Shelly, the funniest thing is that I got my degree and then I started teaching and my first teaching job was sixth grade. And I was in a small town in a rural district here in Oklahoma. And my I had sixth graders that couldn't read. I had sixth graders that didn't really know all the names of the letters the alphabet. And I was totally shocked, and I was totally unprepared. I have to say that's I knew I did not know how to teach a child to read. And I tell people when I tell my story, I say. I actually went to real estate school and thought I'm going to go into real estate because I can probably figure out how to sell a house. I don't know if I can teach a kid how to read. You know, that's how difficult it was for me. And then someone called me and and said, you need to come to this training And we have these people coming from the Scottish Rite Hospital in Dallas that are going to be training teachers in Oklahoma, and you need to learn about this program called Alphabetic Phonics, which was an Orton-Gillingham-based training. I went through the training. It took over two years to go through the entire program, get all my curriculum hours, That's when I learned how to teach kids to read, and that's when I really became passionate because I thought, one, I don't want anyone to feel like I felt and because that was a scary feeling, and and it was very dissatisfying to think I finished four years of college, and I still don't know what I'm doing, and then I, of course, pursued my master's and my doctorate now that I was prepared to talk about and to figure out and look at more closely. How do we teach children how to read? So that's, that's really been that path of having that first year of students and the heartbreak of knowing I wasn't reaching them.
0: Story of so many people. I mean, that was my whole career as a high school English teacher, 10 years. And I never understood how to teach those children, those decoding skills. I was supposed to be teaching Shakespeare and they didn't know how to read. And there was absolutely nothing in my training or background that prepared me to do that. So I think a lot of people recognize that in the story that you're telling. Yes, unfortunately. Yes, and unfortunately, it's still going on, so we still have it happening. So you were a dyslexia therapist, and you've trained teachers to work with dyslexic students. How do you think this work has changed since you became involved with it, and what else do you think needs to happen at this point?
1: Uh, That's a really good question, and I, I don't know that I have the answer to that, but I will say Things that I know since I received my training back in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, we certainly didn't know what we know about phonemic awareness that we know today, which obviously you you mentioned my kid lips creation when in the introduction. So that had me the reason why I started um created the kid lips because I knew we needed to understand more about phonemic awareness, but not just phonemic awareness, the phonetics of the language. So that was something that I I don't think that I understood that as well, working with my dyslexic students. The other thing that's happened since my training is that I've realized that as an Orton-Gillingham therapist, I worked very slowly and very very methodically over an hour at, at a minimum of an hour one-on-one with a student, sometimes two to three students in a group. But I've realized we can probably work at a faster pace than that that rigorous program with the majority of kids. There's no question that our more severe dyslexic kids need that type of instruction, but I don't feel like all of our dyslexic kids need that instruction. I feel like that there's, there are paths that we can close the gap more rapidly for those kids. They might not ever be the top readers in their classrooms, but we know you don't have to be the top reader to be very successful in life. Right. And that's, that's the cool thing about, working with dyslexic kids is there's so many other things that they've got going on for them.
0: Absolutely. And in the introduction, I talked about you believing in the first best instruction and really getting that tier one stronger so that we reach more kids so that we don't have that
1: kind of intervention necessary when it didn't have to be. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that I' having good first instruction, and things are trickling down into the classroom as we know, we're getting we're gaining a better understanding of structured literacy. Of course, in the state of Alabama, you guys are are using your your law that has all of that information lined out very clearly for teachers. And I think one of the challenges is how do we implement that correctly without one, I don't want to burn out teachers and I don't want to burn out kids. So how do we make that? How do we get that information into a classroom? And it doesn't have to be skill and drill, but skill with the thrill, I'm learning, I'm succeeding. And I'm motivated to do that as a teacher and as a student, because I think, again, both of those things play a role in how how our educational system is functioning. I love that. The skill with the thrill. Somebody else said that the other day. And I was like, that's a good one. I'm going to keep that one.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that needs to be on some posters somewhere. So you authored the highly successful sound spelling cards and kid lips.
1: What really led you to develop those specific tools? Yeah. So that, that again, goes back to my dyslexia training, because as a dyslexia therapist, I spent so much time teaching kids the the rules, really the patterns, the language. Uh, a lot of people refer to them as rules, but there, there are specific patterns that we have in language. Nobody ever explained this to me until I went through my dyslexia therapy training, but then I became a letters trainer. And actually in 19, I think it was 98, I went to Greenwood Institute in Putney, Vermont and studied with Louisa Motes. And Louisa, the author of letters, of course, she did boot camps for teachers. And I still have my big notebooks from my boot camps. I went. Two years, and this was after, of course, I'd had my Orton-Gillingham training. So she hadn't quite published letters. We were she was at that beginning point, and it was because I'd met Louisa. She invited me to come and do letters training with her, and as I was teaching letters, I realized. I could spew off the patterns. I could tell someone, well, so you use DG at the end of a word after short vowels in the word judge. And they're like, how do you know that? And, you know, when do you use a C? When do you use a K? And I could just tell people and they were like, where, where do you find that information? So I thought I'm going to write it down on the back of some cards. So forever open court has had the, the big sound spelling cards that they use, which are brilliant. But I decided to use that idea and extend it by writing all of the phonics information on the back of the cards. So that way teachers had a quick cheat sheet. They didn't have to read an entire program. They didn't have to buy a book and try to tab everything. It was just right there for quick access. So that was the very first thing I ever created for tools for reading. And it was the only tool in the tools for reading book bag that we had for a long time, and it's been uh, an incredibly successful tool. We've even taken on the Tools for Reading website. We have the West Virginia Phonics that the state of West Virginia wrote in a nice structured one-page lesson plans. We use, and we've even embedded the the phoneme grapheme cards images there, so teachers can see. You don't have to use the tools for reading cards. If you have a program that has those types of cards, this is the pattern that you're teaching and you're working on in this set of lesson plans. So things as accessible and as easy for a teacher as possible. Because I know for me, that was also like, just keep it simple. Just, I don't need to know the whole thing, the whole story right now. Just tell me the part that's going to get me some traction. And that was why I created those cards. and And then the Kid Lips were a natural thing that followed to talk about the phonology of the language the phonetics
0: how helpful to have a cheat sheet. I wish that there were more cheat sheets in all of this work that we're doing because it's a lot of just cognitive load to keep
1: all of the pieces in our heads. It's true. There's a lot going on. And unless you've had rigorous training, lots of practice, constant coaching, it's hard to know where to go for things. So that was, again, my reasoning for thinking, you know, something that a teacher could pick up and begin to understand about the language. And and really for, for people to see, it's really not that difficult if you begin to think about how the language is. That's just not the way it was packaged for us when we were in our undergrad programs. Yeah,
0: if you had any of that instruction at all. So,
1: right. so what kind of success are you seeing with teachers using these tools? Ah, that's a great question. I, I love that you put that in here. So the kid lips and using sound walls, the kid lips have been out for a while, but but actually posting sound walls and using sound walls in classrooms because that's what we're doing with kid lips. So I have to say again, another shout out to letters training in Louisa. The reason I understand the phonology and the arrangement of the, the speech sounds that the way that we set up a sound wall is because of all my letters training. So we are teaching teachers how to set up sound walls, but then how to teach kids about the sounds. In Alabama in Crenshaw County, to be specific, one of my colleagues, so I've got to give a shout out to Rhonda Ayers from the ARI team and who's retired now from, from ARI, but she still working with those teachers I know and, and doing a lot of work with teachers all over the state of Alabama, which is cool. So those teachers in Crenshaw County, a handful of them started going through the letters training when letters first came out. I know now Alabama's really doing large scale training, but this was these were some of the initial people who were trained in smaller groups and Kayla Benick their coach there in Crenshaw County also would meet with this group of teachers about every Wednesday night just to talk about what they'd studied and learned in letters, and they decided they wanted to learn more about sound walls. So they figured out together, how are we going to post this? How are we going to introduce these sounds? They they had the KidLips materials, but this is my favorite part of the story. They began introducing the sound walls and they were a little late in the year. They didn't get all the materials and get things started until about late September. And this was in 2019, they invited me to come and visit, and I think I went in January and in March. Maybe I'd gone in December and then in March again, or end of February. I got to go visit and see the schools, do a little training, and then go back and see what was happening again. But in these schools, in the classrooms where the teachers were using the the sound walls and all the KidLips materials, the sound spelling cards, the kids started off the year with 45% of the children on level, which is not a great number, but it's not an unusual number, right? I just, I wish I could say, now most of our first graders come in with 80% on level. But honestly, we just don't see that. That would be our goal that we do see that. So, but they started out about 45% of them were on grade level. By the end of February of 2020, they had 86% of the kids on grade level, then school shut down, right? But they had more gains and they had more kids reading on level during that period of time than they'd ever had before. And so, and these were experienced teachers. These were not first year teachers. These were teachers who have, you know, been to this rodeo before. And so the exciting thing is, was one, they had such growth Two, They had children. they, Knew we're going to have to have tier two intervention and probably some kids with tier three. By the end of that February, they said, you know, we're not, we're not going to refer any children. We're actually closing the gap, and that's what when, when you say, you know, Mary, you, you talk about tier one, that beginning instruction. It's like yes, and it doesn't have to be that it really unique, really different. It just needs to be very precise, very intentional, very specific. And these teachers. Spending three to five minutes a day talking about the speech sounds in their introduction, their daily warm up before before they do their phonemic awareness tasks, and then referring back to those sounds during the day. The cool thing was was watching the kids when I was in those classrooms and the videos that I have of the kids. One, they had the language to talk about it. Um, two, and they could say, "Oh, you know, I'm confusing these two sounds." And here's why, because my mouth looks the same and they're a lot alike, they could self-correct. So it follows that Stanislas DeHaan talks about those principles of instruction and, and one giving good, corrective feedback. So as a teacher, actually having that information to give that feedback, but also being able to self-correct, right? And knowing I have the resources to do that. And so that w- those were the things that they, they use the sound wall so consistently and they became a part of the children's language. They could say, I know the sound and here are my choices for spelling. And I, I had a first grade teacher who was so cute. and She said she was using sound walls in her classroom, but she had her son who was a kindergarten student and they were using sand walls in his classroom. And she was talking about the fact that she said, now, now my child is smart, but he's not that smart. <laughs> it's like, keep it real. You know, mamas. we know. Anyway, she said, but he's sitting there, this kindergartner at Christmas time, and he's writing his Christmas list and he's writing the word boots and he gets the B and he knew that. And then he sits there and he says, ooh, ooh. Ooh, and he writes OO. She said, I had like, how did he know how to write OO? So she said, I turned to him and I said, you know, how did you know that? And he said, well, we talk about that OO sound is in the moon OO all the time. And so I looked at that card and I saw OO was written underneath that moon picture. So I knew And it's like, yes, that's what you like one creating that, that idea that kids are, they're inquisitive. They want to be learners. They know they can be successful and imagine watching his mother be thrilled and what kind of, again, that's motivating for him like i'm smart i can do this i'm learning about this and that's an amazing thing that that we see happening with i i could tell you several stories from being in the classrooms with kids but we just we consistently are seeing those types of things where kids are just they're being they're able to make sense of things it's not just about coming at instruction from the print perspective but also from the speech sound perspective i think the cool thing is is that i always say kids have they have the apparatus they have their mouth their tongue their teeth they can feel it they can hear it but we've never created that metacognitive awareness of, so where's your tongue when you when you make the sound for the letter t that sound oh yeah, it that bump behind your teeth have you ever felt that there before oh yeah i felt that bump oh yeah oh wow who knew and it's just they like talking about stuff like that it's really fun to watch
0: and how impressive that that kindergarten student was doing things that a lot of times people don't even necessarily believe that first graders are capable of.
1: Exactly. And that's why I love to say that that, that mom said he's smart, but he's not that smart. <laughs> so it's like but if, You know what? If you put the information out there for them, you, you provide it in a way that they can learn it. Guess what? Everybody could be that smart. It's just making sure we have the right information in place. I love it.
0: Dr. Antonio Fierro is your partner in Tools for Reading. I love him. And he has a personal background and interest in helping English language learners. Why is
1: KidLips so helpful for these students? Great question too. So yes, Antonio, I'm so fortunate to have a a colleague and partner like Antonio to do this work. And I honestly asked him to join me because I'd worked with him so many times and listened to him talk about Spanish phonology and to hear Antonio talk about the fact that in English we have 18 vowel sounds, but in Spanish, there's only five. You know, what does that mean? And then as I listened more closely, I could hear Antonio, I would, you know, he would say things like, yeah, so in Spanish, there's the E sound as in when we say yes, C, but how's that E spelled? It's spelled with an I in Spanish, right? So my Spanish speakers, like they've got the E sound, but they use the letter I to spell the E sound. And guess what? They don't even have the I sound, short I, I. And, but they have the letter I, but when was the last time a first grade teacher or kindergarten teacher said in Spanish, you don't have this sound. So I'm going to teach you about this sound because this is a very common sound in English. That's how that connection with kid lips has come into play is to say, we have the Spanish phonology in there but it's what I tell teachers is that you might have kids that speak five or six up to 10 or 12 different languages in your classroom. I know, and I'm going to buildings and now we have kids from everywhere, but the fact is the awareness, they probably don't have the sounds that we have. And if you can begin to understand that, even though we're not able to give insight into every sound and every language, just the reality of Do you know the English sounds? Can you teach your children the English sounds? Because that's what's going to allow them to become proficient readers. That's how we're going to close the gap with our EL students. And of course, they need vocabulary and background knowledge and all those other things. But this piece is not something that we've ever really addressed. So that was having Antonio as my partner and writing this and doing this, working on this information has been a game changer, especially for my, my EL classrooms. And I, I just have to put a plug in there for the Kidlips instructional guide, the manual. We have all the Spanish tips written out for each sound: what does or doesn't exist in Spanish, and and what do you need to know about that for your students. So we've tried to make every lesson plan a two pager, so it doesn't take a lot of planning, it doesn't take a lot of effort, but it does require preparation on the teacher's part to read it and 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 then just to know. I've got that information right there at my fingertips. I can go there and find the answer. So that was that was a lot of what our work was designed to do for our EL kids.
0: Well, you used the word game changer, and that was exactly what was going through my mind when you were telling that it is a game changer for our teachers to realize that there are things that our students ha- have never heard or especially been taught. And for us to take that own gives these kids a much better chance of learning the language
1: fluently. Yeah. Today, I I did a class with a group of teachers. And and one of the first things I say in my first session is, do not be afraid to learn this with your kids. If you think you have to know it all before you begin teaching it, you're never going to get started. And you're going to learn things as long with your kids and your kids are going to teach you things because it's so fascinating how five, six, seven-year-olds, they are thinking about this stuff and they're making errors that are errors that would typically be phonological errors. Nobody ever told us as elementary ed teachers, oh, when they write a a J for a DR, like in the word drum, that's that makes perfect sense. There's a reason why they do that. So those are things we teach in our workshops. And, you know, teachers are like, I see that all the time, but I didn't know there was a reason why it's like, yeah, there's, there is, and you can explain it to them and they can self-correct on that. And they can, at least you create an awareness for them, not you're just wrong, but here, let me show you why it makes sense that you made that error. Let me show you why.
0: We always talk about cracking the code. And that really is cracking the code for teachers to understand why kids have made those kinds of errors.
1: Yeah, some good stuff.
0: It is. <laughs> you've talked about teachers needing to be smarter than their programs. How has the professional learning you've led over the years helped them to do this? And what would you change
1: about how we train teachers? Uh, this is a tough question, Shelly. That's a it's a great question. That teachers need to be smarter than their programs. That's a Louisa quote for sure. The teacher training, teacher preparation, getting things that are more practical. I want I want people to understand the theory of reading. I want them and and, and of course I feel like we we throw the term science of reading around pretty lightly. It's it's um it's overused almost, but understanding. Like what happens in the brain, there are specific areas of the brain. You read on the left side of your brain. We know that with confidence. I want teachers to know that. I want teachers to know what areas do I need to educate when I'm teaching a child how to read. And I want, I, I really... And in training teachers, obviously, I want them to know the structure of the language. How does the English language work? I want you to know about the phonology, the sounds of our language. I want you to know about the orthography, the patterns of our language, the print. And I want you to understand how morphology plays a huge role, the semantics of our language, the syntax, the way we put words together. Of course, now in my hand, I'm like the reading rope all the things in the reading rope, right. But having extended classes and explaining what makes up the thread of each of the strands of the rope. And can I actually use that reading rope to help me determine, do I have a good program that I'm working with? Does my program have gaps in it? If it does, how do I know what the gaps are? And then what are the resources? Because I I've been told I have to teach with fidelity, but I can also be smarter than my program. So I don't have to be unfaithful to the program, but I can enhance with good structured language information. So I think that that kind of preparation, of course, our professors are getting more and more on board with learning about the structure of language, and that's good. But I, I think it's it's it takes time. It's going to be a time thing to really make the shift occur. And hopefully new and people will will come on board and and be new, younger people that are being trained up through the science of reading and will take over some of those pre-service training classes because that's I think what, gosh, if they, it's it's just like good tier one instruction. If my my babies have good tier one instruction, if my pre-service teachers have good pre-service and in, undergrads instruction, you know, the, the whole road, it's, it's a much smoother road. It's not that unknown, windy, bumpy, <laughs> I have no idea where I'm going kind of road, right?
0: Where you get lost and you're on the side of the road, just wondering where you went wrong. That's
1: right. And yeah, and I don't even know how to get to where I need to go anymore. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Sometimes I wonder where I was headed in the first place. So, but that's part of getting old. So,
1: Yeah. yeah. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so sound walls are extremely popular right now. Like I'm seeing them on Pinterest and people are putting them on Twitter. And I worry a little bit about teachers being asked to use them without the appropriate background knowledge. What are your thoughts on how we help teachers use these tools?
1: Yeah, I agree that I worry about teachers and I and I know what you're saying. I've seen things on on Pinterest or teacher pay teachers and Twitter, Facebook, everywhere where people are posting pictures of sound walls and they're not sound walls at all. And there's a bunch of print up there. And I so just to clarify, because this is this conversation has come up recently. Sound walls are about the sounds first because we go from speech to print when we learn to read. But we do put print on the sound walls and we put print there because you're not going to read if you don't have print. So teaching about the sounds and the arrangement of the sounds is important. And and as I was saying earlier, you know, when I first introduced the charts and the way that Tools for Reading has the sound walls set up, they're set up that way because linguists, I'm going to say 50, 60 years ago, (laughs) linguists, speech pathologists, they figured out the arrangement of where do we produce those sounds in our mouth? So so I say, Mary Dahlgren did not create the layout of the sound wall, all right? I created the kidlips materials, but the layout of the sound wall has been around for years and and there's some disagreement. We it's it's like we say linguists will say there's uh 42, 43, 44 speech sounds in English. I always say 44 speech sounds because that's what Louisa taught me. So I go with 44. I have we have 44 sounds on our on our sound wall. But as teachers to learn how to use it, there there needs to you need to do some study. Again, I, I hate to just toot my own horn for classes, but Tools for Reading, we offer we, are, we offer a six-hour class. My friend Rhonda is traveling around Alabama doing professional development in schools. Uh, Kayla Benek is also doing that, and I've done several virtual presentations. But we do anything from overview just to kind of get an idea of what the setup is to a six-hour class from soup to nuts start starting with what's the brain doing ending up with how do i post high frequency words on my sound wall and how do i introduce those words what do i need to know about the patterns what do i do with the irregular words how do i talk about the heart words we bring teachers along and teach them all of that but i I feel like teachers need to be listening and studying and understanding. It's not just a a fly-by-night creation. It's something that is well-steeped in science, the, the arrangement of the sound walls, and then talking about articulatory gestures we're we're working on more and more data but we know that that's also an effective I'll go back to Al Lieberman Alan Isabel Lieberman from the Haskins Labs that Al Lieberman said it's not just an acoustic sound it's an articulatory gesture that we hold on to in our brain in that phonological processing so if it's that articulatory gesture when I'm making a sound, but I, I'm not aware of it because I don't need to be aware of sounds to speak words. But then you raise that awareness, that's that's creating that that synapse that way. I and I I keep talking like everybody can see me, but I'm pointing to the left side of my brain because. I think, how do I build that super highway for kids so that they can read rapidly and automatically, how do I teach so in first grade, they leave first grade and I say, I don't really have any children that I need to put on a plan, because that highway, they're not on the country back roads. They didn't miss the on-ramp. I got them on the ramp and we're, we're, we're headed down the highway. Now, some people are going faster than others, but they're, they're on the right road. And that's, that's one of the things, you know, we want teachers to know and be able to do again with confidence and feeling positive about their work. Because Shelly, my other dream is that we keep more people in our profession and as opposed to losing people, because teaching right now. Oh my goodness. It's, it's about the toughest job out there. It's not the toughest. I know, but it's not an easy career right now.
0: No, it absolutely not. And I was just thinking back on our conversation about Gil leading to a thrill when we are able to teach kids to read successfully. What a thrill. And that is the kind of thing that keeps people in
1: this profession. Exactly. Yeah. And, and as a, as a teacher, as an adult, being able to say, I know what I'm doing like, and I'm, I'm changing kids' lives. That's exciting. I am willing to get up and go back tomorrow to do that as opposed to, I'm going to look at the want ads tonight.
0: (laughs) Exactly right. And we certainly don't need anyone else looking uh, to leave the profession because we need our wonderfully trained and motivated teachers Thank you so much for being with me today. I appreciate so much what you're doing for teachers and children and families and this whole country. Uh,
1: Well, Shelly, I appreciate you asking me to join you. And and I I could talk about this for hours, as you can imagine. But I I hope that people have been able to glean some good tidbits from this podcast and we will dig deeper in learning about the sound walls and the, the structure of language and building in that understanding of science of reading. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, thank you so much. It's just been a thrill. Join us again for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Networks podcast.